from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Washington, D.C. On this week's edition, the lowdown from Greenbuild, how Canopy's founder is winning converts on deforestation, why island microgrids are a big thing, and on the scene at the Gabon Climate Conference. It's good cop, bad cop, this week on 350. It's November 17th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me a couple hundred miles up Interstate 95 is Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you today? You're in I'm Washington? Good. I am. It's great to be back here. You know, I used to live here, but only for 24 years. But I love being here. I'm staying in uh, DuPont Circle, which is right across the street from my old office. And it's, you know, uh, as much as I just adore and love and cherish being in the San Francisco Bay Area, Washington's still a pretty cool city, even politics, what they are, it's mm. still pretty good. Yep. Did you uh, have a particular purpose for being there? Uh, well, there's some personal, some business. There's a couple of events going on right here, a couple of business lunches I have to do. Uh, but the main gist is my mother-in-law's 90th birthday. So happy birthday, Lorraine Rosenberg, 90 years young. It's really wow. kind of cool. So, uh, but then, yeah, I went to uh, an event at the Washington Post um, on Thursday and um, it was over at WWF and yeah, just, you know, seeing people, but uh, it's a, a family weekend. So how much are you paying attention to COP? You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I, I get, and I'm sure you do too, and I know everybody is 20 or 30 or 40 emails a day from, you know, press people on the ground in Bonn. Kind of, I have to say, I kind of wish I was there. I was thinking, that's ah, not a big cop uh, relative to 21 or next year, 24 in Poland is supposed to be a, a big one because that's when a lot of the, I think when countries are supposed to be um, formally submitting their uh, their commitments. But there's a lot going on and, and the business community as always is, uh, is stepping up and we'll hear from uh, a couple uh, people from Microsoft who are in Bonn uh, in, in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, what's really interesting, there's, I guess, two things that are interesting. One is the business sector, and two is, is uh, our beloved governor, California, Jerry Brown, who just seems to, to be the leader uh, in, in a certain way, um, rallying not just the, the American delegation, along with former Mayor Mike Bloomberg, but also sort of taking the lead on what, what the, in UN speak, subnational government, so states, provinces, cities, and the business community, uh, in rallying them beyond the national, because this has traditionally been the realm of, of nations, and but but bringing the cities and, and provinces and counties together and states to to really individually and collectively you know, step up, ramp up their efforts. And um, that's pretty interesting. And so he seems to be all over the place. And a lot of the news uh, and, and events seem to be um, Jerry Brown. I guess Jerry Brown's the new Richard Branson. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard Branson's also being Richard Branson, though, that, which is great. I mean, it's, the, the extent to which you have these credible 
loud voices speaking on behalf of these so-called subnationals. I think it's it's super important, and I'm I'm looking forward to catching up with the the business leaders that have been there um, to to see what their pulse is and to see what you know what the the next steps are. Yeah, and even the Wall Street Journal on Thursday ran a piece about uh, how companies are pushing ahead on climate change targets, um, and it's based. Uh, well, at least one of the bylines is in Bonn and talking about the commitment Microsoft made and talking about what Apple's done and Walmart and Thyssen Krupp and uh, a bunch of other companies. And there's Mike Bloomberg and Jerry Brown uh, front and center in the story. And so uh, it's, it's, it's getting coverage in the mainstream media. It's also you know talking about the fact uh, that's not the dirty secret, but it's the uh, other fact to hear that. Um, for all of the commitments being made by companies, uh, it's it's not enough. It's still incremental, and it's not uh, at the scale, scope, and speed that we need. Um, and so that's part of the conversation. But um, it, it's uh, it, it, the fact that companies are getting recognition that that they rightfully that they deserve uh, for being leaders, particularly in light of the absence of of U.S. leadership. Um, and boy, isn't that weird where the American uh, delegation is pushing clean coal at COP. Um, I can't remember who it was who said it's you know kind of like pushing tobacco at a cancer conference. Uh, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. And it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Yeah, the World Resources Institute has been super at giving um, updates. I think that was the, the, the folks that said that. But, um, th- you know, I, and I'm, I'm really disappointed as well with that stance. The only thing that I do find very um, intriguing is that potentially this this conversation we've been having for a while about low carbon, right, and, and taking technologies that, that, and that can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emissions um, as well, you know, not just capping them and, and, and making sure that we're putting less in, but taking out what's already there. I feel like Maybe, um, just maybe, some of those actors are in in uh, Bonn and they're getting a little bit more serious um, uh, about what what they need to do. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being like super naive, but hopefully maybe that will be one good thing that comes out of this. I think so, and and I also uh, recommend uh, an article in in the current. I think it's the November. 20th issue of the New Yorker by Elizabeth Colbert uh, called Can Carbon Dioxide Removal Save the World? And it, uh, getting into this thing that we've been talking about for, for quite some time, uh, carbon uh, removal, and uh, it's part of that sort of drawdown, although they don't really talk about drawdown or, or Paul Hawkins' book, but but it does talk about the Center for Carbon Removal based uh, back in Oakland uh, and No Deitch, who's uh, it's a young nonprofit spun out of uh, Berkeley working out of a little, sort of a shared workspace area, but uh, with a lot of potential about uh, you know, bringing the technologies and the companies and, and, and the uh, measurements and metrics and intelligence of all this together to look at, you know, what does it take to remove carbon? We're, we're moving beyond that old world of geoengineering where we're talking about, you know, putting silver halides in the ocean or in the sky and all these different things that are kind of scary and big and very expensive and unknown and and probably impractical to uh, a whole new generation of things there on uh, carbon sequestration beyond trees. And there's a lot to talk about there. And, and we'll be talking more about that uh, at a lot of our events. And, and I, I hope we keep covering it. I plan to. Cool. Well, let's uh, move beyond that to the rest of the week in review. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I loved Anya Hollemeiser's uh, piece this week about Starbucks and their sustainability bond. Of course, we had Drew Wolf, the uh, Starbucks vice president and treasurer at the Green Biz conference earlier this year in Phoenix. Uh, but sort of taking stock in, in what he's learning about green bonds. Uh, just to refresh, back in May 2016, Starbucks issued a almost $500 million, $495.6 million dollar sustainability bond. Um, and um, actually just about a month after uh, Drew Wolf uh, began his role as the company's treasurer. And, um, you know, this is at a time when green bonds are really ramping up very, very quickly. These are bonds that are issued specifically for the purposes of environmental projects um, uh, like renewable energy and green buildings and, and a number of other things. So to check in on this, sort of what are they learning? What do they do? Anya checked back in with with Drew, uh, I guess about eight or nine months later from uh, his appearance at GreenBiz to see what's going on. And um, it, it, the results seem to be promising. Yeah, there's two threads here. One is, and I just want to make the distinction that they call this a sustainability bond, which lets them be a little bit more flexible about how they use the money. Um, and in, they're, they're using it in, in a great portion to help the farmers that uh, supply them uh, and make sure that they've got uh, not just uh, more sustainable business practices, but business practices that are more socially responsible. Right? So they're using it in a CSR sense as well. And I, what I found particularly interesting were two threads. Number one is that, um, you know, Drew and, and the, the Starbucks treasury team, are, they're using this as a way of distinguishing the debt that Starbucks is, is uh, issuing. So it's for them, it's like a, a competitive differentiator. It's not just, hey, we're green. It's, hey, we're doing something no one else is doing. And so that has been intriguing to the institutional investors. Um, and then the second thing I just want to point out is that they, they took this over to Japan um, in March. And that's one of the newer, you know, that's sort of the update on what's going on here. The uh, yen issue that they did was valued around $770 million. But the Thing that I found particularly fascinating is the Japanese market is much more mainstream um, for the, these sorts of issues. For, to them, this is just um, you know part and parcel of of the debt and what it needs to do. It, so it's more mainstream in Japan. It's more unique in the United States at this point. Um, and here to talk a little bit more about it, I have some uh, interview clips from Drew Wolf. Um, so we'll we'll let him say it in his own words. Our corporate sustainability efforts are wrapped up in, in, in what we do. And, and there's good business reasons for it, but also good long-term sustainability reasons. And that's kind of three pillars, which is green retail, pathways to opportunity for you know, veterans, refugees, and opportunity youth. And then finally, you know, our efforts in the, in the coffee economy. And, and you can see you know, that business rationale is it's in our interest um, to have a long-term source of, of good high quality Arabica coffee, right? So we're, we're investing and lending and um, in the way we purchase coffee and the standards we use at a pretty massive scale. So, you know, my job as treasurer is to fund the company and I'm looking to, you know, if I can look for new ways to fund the company and support our effort and grow our efforts even, you know, I'll, I'll look to do that. Um, I knew a lot about green bonds, just, um, you know, where the use of proceeds goes towards renewable energy and, and you know, carbon reducing projects. But when I, I got to reading the, green, you know, green bond principles, there's a social 
social bond annex to it and pretty straightforward. And I realized, oh, all this farmer lending and, and how we source coffee would qualify into the, you know, not just the green category. So that's, we kind of created this new category called sustainability bond, which has elements of uh, that a green bond would have, but also what a social bond would have, right? It covers agriculture, you know, social things like access to education and healthcare and that kind of stuff. What happened after the bond was issued? How did it affect the, the company, you know, benefits, um, any, any challenges that you ran into? You know, not not any real challenges. I mean, I think there were internal qualitative benefits and then even just external too. I mean, when when Starbucks issues debt, we're competing you know, with other companies, right? We're all trying to issue debt and trying to get people to buy our debt and lend us money. And um, anytime you can add a feature to something that investors want that helps you in, in, once again, selling those bonds relative to all their other choices, that's a great thing. And that played out. That was true. Very, very competitive pricing and a ton of demand for the issuance. Um, also, you know, many, many new investors to Starbucks um, that were that were coming from these sustainability, you know, ESG type funds, which they might not have thought about Starbucks as an ESG type investment before that. Gave us a chance to tell us our story, tell them our story, um, which also spills over into many of these are big big investment places that also have equity funds that um, would be interested in Starbucks stock, you know, not just our debt. And then I've also had, you know, probably, you know, 15 calls with other treasurers really interested um, in doing something like this. Usually the hurdle they're worried about is getting people internally to actually do the projects and, and produce in a way that they can be confident in, in terms of standing up to investors and say what they're doing. And then, um, you know, it was really interesting. So we did this in the U.S. And then, you know, we went to Japan. I mean, because you can issue bonds in different currencies. And, you know, there's actually good risk management reasons for doing that. And we have a big Japan business. And I was just really amazed at um, the reception in Japan. And and there, these are, you know, the people that invested in our bond were the mainstream investment shops. They don't have ESG in their title or um, in their marketing, but that's 100% how they invest. Right. So really the question is, how do we make this as normal within the United States as it is in, say, Europe or Japan? If investors, you know, retail investors and and um start to demand, like, I care about this stuff. I care about global warming. Kind of like, you know, 20 states signed up for the Paris Accord. It doesn't matter what the federal government did. The states are like, we're in because it's a big deal and my constituents care about it. So I don't think it'll impact it at all. Um, I think it's really a function of where the consumer is at and in people's minds. And there's still, you know, there's a huge part of the United States that does believe in climate change and that it's real and that we're being impacted. And they definitely care. And they just need to know there's a way to influence this, not just through, you know, what products you buy and how you live, but also where you invest, you know, your retirement savings. And um, as they start to realize that, um, there will be demand. And then where there's demand, there will more and more companies will issue because it'll, it'll justify the extra work and expense they have to do to do something like this. But at the end of the day, if investors want it, everything follows the money. Yeah, I think this is such a fascinating topic, and it's really, uh, we're going to be talking about it more, we're going to be 
having a whole finance track at the GreenBiz uh, 18 conference in February, talking more about not just green bonds and sustainability bonds, but a number of other financing mechanisms that are helping companies and and cities and others uh, address both their uh, science-based targets and the uh, sustainable development goals and the under two degrees Celsius uh, climate goals and all of that. But a few weeks ago, there's a piece that said that um, green bonds, which I think incorporates all these, uh, a whole range of different types of things like sustainability bonds, as of October 18th this year, had already hit $90 billion compared to $81 billion of, of all of last year. In fact, September was the busiest month with $15 billion worth of green bonds issued. So this is growing uh, in, a, in a pretty interesting way. And, and you throw in uh, sustainability bonds and uh, social investment bonds and, and a number of other things. And we've got a new market on our hands that's going to uh, really be significant in helping to fund this, uh, this great transition. So Heather, you had a really interesting piece about an organization that isn't necessarily at the top of everyone's minds, a nonprofit called Canopy. And uh, you interviewed uh, Nicole Rycroft, their founder and executive director. Uh, they're looking at ancient forests. Tell us what you learned. So uh, I just this is one of those, whoa, I, when I started interviewing her, I, I, I assumed that this is a huge NGO, right? So because of their influence, they they have more than 750 call them corporate allies, they're not necessarily partners because what makes Canopy a little bit different, right? So they have the mission that they have um, that Nicole, who's an Australian, sort of has in her bones is, is forests, right? So protecting the, the ancient forests of, of northern and western Canada, the Indonesian rainforests and so forth. To a lesser extent, they're, they're, they're doing work in Amazon, but um, for me, what was particularly intriguing was the fact that this is a nonprofit that has about $1.4 million in their annual budget. And I thought, whoa, I thought they would have a lot more um, sort of monetary influence. They, they have an interesting model where, um, you know, lots of the, the environmental nonprofit community, lots of foundations um, behind them, individual donors, they actually have a, a policy that caps the corporate uh, donations at 25%. Of, of their total budget. So they purposely say, hey, listen, we want to work closely with you. We want to partner with you, but we don't, we don't necessarily want your check. If we want your check to maybe help the meeting costs, but uh, you know, it's not snobbery or anything like that. It's, it, it's more, they want to focus on making these relationships transformational as opposed to transactional, right? So they, they want the spirit of these relationships to pervade sectors and, uh, you know, for me, that was a, one of those, whoa, you know, just uh, not, not that I'm knocking big budgets, but uh, for me, that, that told me just how big their influence is. Yeah, and 11 people uh, in their whole organization, that's, that's pretty impressive. And I, I also like the range of, of, of topics uh, and, and sectors, because um, it's really easy to go after the paper users. That's been going on for 20, 25 years, you know, the big catalog publishers and book publishers and newspapers and such. Um, but they're moving to fashion. And, and I don't think people appreciate as much how, uh, how much wood pulp goes into fabrics like uh, uh, rayon, viscose, modal, and uh, 
uh, Lyocell, which is, I, is one of my favorites because they, they marketed it as Tencel, and I have I love Tencel shirts. I have to say, um, and uh, and there's a, a lot of that is coming from uh, you know sources that have not been sustainable, and they're trying to move the industry. And of course, uh, the the fashion industry is often one that's both targeted and also at the leading edge of these things because they are such so brand conscious. Um, and so uh, organizations like VF, which has Timberland, North Face, Wrangler, and Vans. Uh, are uh, in the crosshairs and and also in the leadership of looking at their supply chains and and how uh, where they're sourcing from how they're sourcing it and and rethinking the sustainability of all that. Yeah, um, the canopy isn't necessarily trying to build its own, you know, cert- certifications or anything. They're they're pointing people towards the existing forestry models that are that are in place and that um, they suggest that these organizations move towards and follow the fashion industry aha was pretty important for me right and and i think that's where they're making the most traction that is why they are gaining so much attention the other thing that i find um intriguing is is their second harvest initiative so not only are they trying to uh you know encourage these these big companies these big brands to rethink where their um pulp is coming from to look at the communities around these forests to become more uh, engaged with understanding how the, the economic and sort of social impact of, of these, these, of what, you know, losing these forests means, but they're, they're pointing the way to alternatives. So the second harvest initiative, encouraging people to look at uh, leftover straw, right? So, you know, there's all this straw in fields um, in, in the United States, I'm just thinking of right now. And they're working on a project to encourage, um, in particular, paper made out of the straw. So they're not only, you know, saying, hey, let's get a, a better strategy in place for decreasing. They're saying, hey, here's maybe what you could use instead. And, you know, just to, to close out this segment, I, I, I want to just leave you with um, a clip from, from Nicole just talking about why forests are in her blood. We're really looking to build transformational relationships with the companies that we work with. So when they sign on uh, and develop a policy with Canopy, uh, you know, they, there's not an insignificant amount of work that they take on doing uh, to engage their suppliers, uh, to shift their internal practices. And what we tend to find is that as soon as a check gets slid across the table, our observation is that it changes the power dynamic of the relationship and the relationship shifts to being more transactional rather than transformational. Our work with fashion brands tends to be really holistic. Um, So for most of the brands that we work with on ensuring that, you know, their viscose and rayon fabrics don't come from endangered forests, we're also working with them uh, to ensure their paper and packaging doesn't come from ancient and endangered forests either. Uh, it's a it's a juggle. Paper in packaging, we recognize that that's you know still the lion's share of in terms of impact on forest ecosystems. Um, so uh, the focus for us on fashion has been you know it's not an insignificant uh, impact with 130 million trees every year now disappearing into rain on viscous fabrics and the trajectory of it doubling within the next decade means that we've had this window, this incredible uh, ability to engage at the inflection point of this supply chain so that billions of dollars of infrastructure don't get built in the middle of the Amazon or the middle of the boreal forest. Um, But that hasn't meant that uh, we don't still, you know, 
prioritize our, our work with paper and packaging uh, focused companies. Uh, as you noted earlier, I grew up in Australia um, and the Australian bush is a really, uh, it's a sensory overload. It's loud and noisy with the birds and the cicadas. Uh, it's hot uh, generally, and that heat uh, releases uh, the eucalyptus and the tea tree oils from the trees. And so I think, you know, the Australian bush and a deep love of wild places got woven into my fabric at an early age in childhood. So I think that's definitely at the base of why forests have become so much a part of my life. Um, and then I think the other thing for me is that I think that, you know, the importance of protecting forests is terribly underappreciated. You know, I, I sometimes describe myself as an environmental, uh, a social justice activist uh, trapped in the body of an environmental activist. Um, but, you know, when we protect forests, it's so much more than just protecting trees. We're protecting life on Earth. We protect clean air. We protect fresh water. We protect species habitat. Some of the animals that uh, those species, uh, you know, we share up to 98% of our DNA with. We protect the cathedrals of our natural world, the cupola of the canopy of the forest, literally, that have inspired the construction of cathedrals. And, and so I think as I, as I grew up, I, I had this deep love already woven in uh, to my DNA. And as I grew into being an adult, it, it was hard for me to think of another issue that touched on so many crucial aspects of human existence. We will close out the Week in Review uh, this week with a story from Cassandra Sweet, our latest, our newest uh, contributing writer. Hello, Cassandra. <laughs> it's great to be able to feature you finally on, on the podcast. But Cassandra has a couple of stories that she's been working on, including one looking at the microgrids that have been uh, helping the Caribbean get back online after those horrible hurricanes called After the Storms. It's microgrid season in the Caribbean. And she takes a look at how the combination of solar uh, and, and batteries and, and other microgrid technologies has helped certain places uh, recover more quickly than others. So um, one of the places that she features is the Dutch island of St. Eustatius. They were up in about 10 days in different, in different portions of the, of the island. And that compares with Puerto Rico, right, where we've still got, I think it was, I read yesterday, half the island half the island is still without power. I mean, this was, what, eight weeks ago now? So the influence of these microgrid technology um, is definitely in the spotlight. We've, we've mentioned it be before. I know that you've been following it as well, Joel. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, I was just thinking as you were talking about this great piece that, uh, that ran um, last month that David Crane, uh, our editor at uh, Large, wrote about um, sort of a vision piece about powering Puerto Rico back to life with with pride, pride being an acronym for a new co that he invented for purposes of, of this article called the Puerto Rico Integrated Dual Energy Company. But but looking at and this is the part of the, both the the great opportunity and also seemingly lost opportunity right now in rebuilding Puerto Rico, which is going to be a very 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 long process. Uh, but, you know, it was an opportunity to to kind of reinvent and start from scratch. And, and the way you do that uh, right now in this in this world of of, of 
central power plants and the possibility of their being destroyed on a regular basis from hurricanes, storms, and, and the like uh, is through microgrids. And so the the fact that we're, yeah, going back to trying to rebuild Puerto Rico the way it used to be, which is always sort of the MO uh, when, you're, when you've got a storm, whether it's in New Orleans or Houston or Puerto Rico or wherever, missing this opportunity to take advantage of this decentralized, localized, cleaner, uh, flexible, uh, dynamic system. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm just want to make sure that that conversation gets out there. And of course it's a little bit, uh, howling in the, uh, hurricane winds right mm-hmm. now on that. Speaking of conversations, I did have one with Cassandra about this topic. And so I'll let it speak for itself, but here is our conversation about microgrids and the future of distributed energy on islands. So thanks, Cassandra, for chatting about this trend. Um, You know, I got really interested in microgrids because I live in New Jersey, (laughs) where Sandy, yeah, right. So Sandy, it was a big topic here in New Jersey um, after Sandy five years ago, and um, quite quite a lot of investments um, in this in this region since then. Although I have to say, a lot of them are are not exactly green. (laughs) They're diesel and natural gas and so forth, but. as we look at the, this storm season, it's it's been literally weeks now since Hurricane Irma and uh, Hurricane Maria walloped islands across the Caribbean. Um, and, and I understand that there are still many communities without power that were relying on the central grid. What I'm wondering, um, I know there's been a lot of investments throughout the Caribbean in different microgrids powered by renewables, um, you know, since the last few years. How did those microgrids fare during these storms? Well, that's a good question, Heather. Um, some of the islands have microgrid technology, and some of them were are or have been in the process of installing uh, microgrid technology. And so, just to explain what that means, uh, it's generally a power source. I mean, it could be a diesel generator, but um, it could also be solar panels and or uh, wind turbines. And so the benefit of having solar panels or wind turbine that can operate you know, after a disaster such as a hurricane is that it continues to generate electricity. Uh, then that source is connected to batteries that store the power. And then they can you know, spit the power back out after the sun goes down or after the wind stops blowing. And microgrid technology includes software and other equipment, uh, power controls, that allow you to take that generator and the battery and separate it from the larger grid so that you can generate power, whether or not there's, there's power flowing on the bigger grid. So in the event of a blackout, uh, you can still have your uh, electrons flowing to power your building, your critical infrastructure such as hospitals, you know, water pumping stations and things like that. So it, it's kind of, it was kind of hard for me to find islands that have a lot of these type of microgrid projects. And I think the main reason for that is that the technology is kind of relatively new and expensive, or it has been expensive. Uh, what I'm hearing is that the price is coming down and especially now, you know, after the devastation of the hurricanes, people are really taking a closer look at this type of microgrid technology uh, and thinking that maybe it, it makes sense to spend the money on it because it could be so valuable. Right. 
Wait, so were most of these microgrids private or were they by, you know, created by the utilities on these islands? Is it kind of a mix of both? Or It's a mix of both. I think I would tend to say, you know, I'm not an expert. From what I've seen, it's mostly private. So a lot of, um, you know, like resorts that kind of have their own microgrid system, which makes sense. I mean, here in the United States, it's usually universities and kind of big institutions that have their own microgrid. On the mainland, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but uh, there's an interesting island called St. Eustatius, it's uh, Stacia for short, um, and it's part of Holland. And so the utility there is is owned and operated now by the Dutch government. And they decided a few years ago to install a microgrid to actually cut their costs. The, the island has been running just um, exclusively on diesel fuel, but it was costing them too much money. So they installed uh, about four megawatts of solar panels. It's about double the amount of power that the island uses at any one time. They have a population of a little under 4,000, so small <laughs> <Ball> island. <laughs> but it's an interesting kind of a living laboratory. Uh, so they installed the solar panels. They installed batteries made by SMA. It's a German company. And um, SMA also made and installed these inverters. They're equipment that you attach to solar panels to um, convert the power from direct current electricity to alternating current. But nowadays, these devices can also do other things too. They're, They're like your smartphone. They can send messages to the grid. They can automatically shut down the part of the grid where they are to protect equipment, say, you know, during a storm. So they can they can actually do a lot of things. And so this type of equipment, Stacia Island has just installed and it works beautifully. Uh, and they're just really impressed by uh, just how how much it strengthens their ability to to keep their power flowing. Were they without power at any part of the storm? They were because they also had down power lines. I mean, they, they have a regular system. It took them about 10 days to restore power, but they're also a little bit of a special case because I, they told me about half of their power lines are underground, uh, which seems like a really good idea <laughs> for an island, you know, in a hurricane alley. Um you know, it's expensive to put power lines underground, but I think ultimately you might see more of this, uh, you know, underground power lines and microgrid installations, particularly near, you know, hospitals and important uh, resources. So what's next? Like, are we going to see more investments in, in the islands or elsewhere? And, and what is needed for that to happen? Yes. So Richard Branson, who's the billionaire founder of the Virgin Group, um, he owns an island. He lives on Necker Island, which is in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, Necker Island has a microgrid and really weathered the storm very well, even though there was a lot of damage. Uh, the, the solar panels continued operating the next day. And so Mr. Branson has been out um, really making a big push for greater investment and help for Caribbean islands to install microgrids and more renewable energy. Um, And so it seems like there may be some more traction. The Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, they have an island energy project where they have been working with islands in the Caribbean to help them install more renewable energy and help them figure out how to finance it. And um, they told me that they've gotten a lot more interest 
in these types of projects. And after the hurricanes, they're finding it easier to raise money for these types of projects among investors and you know people who want to help. So we'll see how that plays out. Thanks, Cassandra, for reporting in. Thank you, Heather. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. So one of the other things taking place last week besides the climate conference in Bonn, Germany, was the GreenBuild conference up in Boston. Um, I don't know, this is maybe the 15th or 20th. It's been going on, going on a long time. Uh, I wasn't able to be there. I've missed the last two, but uh, our own Verge program director and senior analyst, Elaine Shea, was there, and she's here now. Hey, Elaine. Hey, Joel. Good to be back. This has been going on, as I said, for a long time. What's the, the feeling there these days? Is this field growing, shrinking? Is their conversation excited, depressed? Uh, what's the, the zeitgeist? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I've been going to GreenBuild for over a decade now. Um, I used to be in the green building industry as a professional um, in that market. And um, it's always a great time to see old friends um, and colleagues and, you know, new people emerging. And just that energy is really fun because there's just so many people. Um, it's generally the big trade show, the annual shindig for all the green building people that I know and 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 then some, including manufacturers, et cetera. Last year was in LA um, and people were, and this was pre-election. And so last year was like, what's the new thing? Technology is so interesting. And so there was some energy around like, you know, looking for the next big thing. This year, I think was, it felt like around the same size. I think 2008 was, you know, the peak around 30,000. Um, this year it felt more like 20,000-ish. Not that I know how to feel that much, but I think I think the point is that it it isn't at its peak anymore. However, there's still a level of buzz around new initiatives and things like that. Um, but things have significantly changed from L.A. Uh, because of the election and a number of other things. So how so? I mean, uh, are people uh, more hopeful? Because is there a Trump bump? Is there a Trump slump? What's the mood in terms of the relationship between the, the current administration and, and all the natural disasters we've seen and, and how that affects the green building industry? Yeah, that's a good question. And you definitely could feel that the themes were kind of playing to how people were feeling um, with the current administration, how obstructive is it is against uh, against many different kinds of sustainability policies and climate change related actions. The emphasis this year of the theme of the conference, every year Greenbelt has a different theme, was hashtag all in. And so, you know, given how isolationist, uh, protectionist the current administration is, there was a lot of emphasis around inclusion of underserved communities. In fact, Mahesh Ramanujan, who is the current CEO of the U.S. Green Building Council, announced that the USGBC was committing to 20% growth over the next 10 years, with 20% of that growth coming from underserved communities. So they're obviously really prioritizing being much more equitable. In addition, there was quite a bit of talk around, we're not going to get support doing this. We've got to take action ourselves. 
Um, and then in addition, because of all of the natural disasters and a lot of things happening to communities and especially people um, that are disenfranchised, um, there's a lot of talk about resilience and adaptation. So when you go to a conference like this, what's your goal? Do you have a mission or a theme? Is there, what are you looking for? Yeah, well, um, this particular year, I was really trying to understand what people were focusing on. What are the big problems they are trying to solve right now? The problem with having such a large trade show oftentimes is that everyone wants to make, make an announcement. Everyone wants to unveil something. There's a new report that's coming out every single day, multiple reports. They're very disconnected and it's very hard to understand what is substantive and actually gaining market traction and what is just smoke and mirrors. And so when I go to GreenBuild, I get together with a lot of the folks who are the influencers, who are the most credible folks and ask them, you know, what are you working on? And I had some really interesting insights. So what are people working on? One of the questions that came up was, I can't make sense of all of these different rating systems, right? So there's confusion among the rating systems. So the, uh, sorry, Green Business Certification Inc., which is GBCI, it's the certification body that USGBC uses for rating systems like LEED. They also have other systems in GBCI system called Well and Edge, which is based in India, Gresb, which is an investor system, Park Smart, which is sustainable garages, Peer, which is an energy one, Sites, which is for landscapes, True for zero waste. I mean, there's so many systems, right? And then they just announced that they acquired another system for resilience called Rely. And then they just had a, created a, a partnership with this uh, communities-oriented rating system called Star Communities, where they also actually have lead for cities and lead for communities, too, and lead for neighborhood development. So you can see it's kind of a low, like a really acronym-heavy rating system confusion landscape um, that people are trying to demystify. <laughs> well, uh, that sound you may have heard is my head exploding, <laughs> just trying to make sense of all this. I mean, that's confusing. Are, are professionals okay with that? Or are people overwhelmed? I think people are very, well, there is quite a bit of interest in lead for cities and community-focused work. And I did talk to a few people who were really seeking for USGBC and GBCI and the technology platform that they use called ArcScoru to simplify things a lot more, to categorize things in a, in a way that's a little bit more easily digestible. That is definitely a desire for the market. The challenge is that I believe those the technology databases and platforms that USGBC and GBCI use require more data. So they want to be able to offer all these kinds of, you know, awards and rating certifications to people who are doing anything who are putting their data inside to actually start tracking that. And the chicken or the egg aspect is that if you don't have the data, then you actually aren't very reliably understanding where you are in the market. And so they're trying to figure that out. But I mean, I, I don't think that they've really, there are a lot of people who are chagrined by the situation and they just want the, it to be simpler. So you mentioned resilience earlier. Uh, tell me more about what those conversations sound like. Yeah, I spoke with many people at GreenBuild asking them what are the big problems they're trying to solve right now. And there were quite a few people who brought up the topic of resilience and how to address that. One person I spoke with was Gretchen Sweeney, who is the vice president at ArcScoru, which is um, that she works under the umbrella of the GBCI, and they make technology products that serve the missions of USGBC and GBCI. And so one of the things that they're trying to solve for is how to address cities and communities. And I asked her 
how does that sync with the resilience standards and certifications that are coming online? And she said this. Yeah, resiliency is really interesting. Um, We are still trying to figure out how to measure resiliency. That's another problem we're trying to solve. In the ARC platform, we measure performance across five different categories, energy, water, waste, transportation, and human experience. And I think you can measure resiliency in every single one of those categories. So we need to figure out what kind of information is out there that... um, city stakeholders can collect and use and want to collect more of and use more of in order to really understand whether resiliency is working in the energy sector, whether it's working in the water sector. Um, And there are a lot of different ways we can probably do this, but we need a few key metrics that a lot of different places can uh, collect and analyze in order to really figure out where we're making an impact. So that's another problem we're trying to solve. So yeah, metrics, that's going to be really interesting. How do you measure resiliency? Um, What about technology and the role of technology solutions in all of this? Um, Is that part of the conversation? Oh, absolutely. So just like Gretchen, who's working on a technology platform to try to track that and figure out what the metrics are for resiliency, there are are some uh, very immediate practical things that a lot of the more corporate owners and investors that I spoke to um, brought up. Um, One of them is Sarah Neff, who is the Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Kilroy Realty Corporation, which is a medium-sized REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. I asked her what problems she's trying to solve right now, and she said this. The problems that I'm currently trying to solve for are uh, finding technology solutions that benefit the health of my occupants, but that do not punish us on the environmental side in terms of either energy or water use. I'm also looking for a way to put some metrics around our biodiversity program. Um, We're starting to plant pollinators. How do I know if they're working? Um, I'm also interested in technologies that would somehow have our solar and our demand response programs and other energy efficiency stuff talk to each other because right now the solar, the batteries, demand response, they don't speak to each other. And so that's uh, obviously not optimal. Um, And then also I'm just trying to find, you know, the more low-hanging fruit of um, energy and especially water projects um, that will show a show a clear ROI. You know, we are many years into our sustainability program now. I'm always looking for new stuff, and I look forward to sort of seeing what what the market throws at me in uh, 2018. So one more thing before we go, there's so much to talk about here, and you've covered so much of the building waterfront already, but let's talk about this idea of net zero buildings, because over the last couple of years, that seems to be the rage of buildings at net zero energy, at least, if not water. What's the state of that now? Is that something that's moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, net zero has been a really popular catchphrase, and especially in the state of California, where there are policies that are requiring the movement toward net zero faster than a lot of other places, we're seeing the market gain traction in certain areas. However, there are a lot of challenges still that are keeping this movement back. And one of them is the idea that a net zero building will still essentially rely on a grid for a backup is going to create some problems for the grid because our infrastructure is not yet ready. And so some of the challenges of the engineering folks that I spoke with are just that, which is net zero building and power grid integration. We just need to make better investments in terms of our infrastructure for the public good. And uh, right now, the political will or social capital still isn't there. And we haven't even gotten into the two star-studded uh, <laughs> Keynotes, uh, Bill Clinton and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, did they add anything 
new to the conversation. Sometimes these keynoters have a lot to say, sometimes not so much. Greenfield always has amazing plenaries and you know, this year was no different. I really enjoyed Bill Clinton and both and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, so Bill Clinton did the plenary on Thursday. He usually the opening plenary is on Wednesday, but it got pushed back because last Wednesday was the one year anniversary of Hillary Clinton losing the presidential election. And so, you know, I, I was told that the Clintons wanted to stay together as a family that night. But clearly, Bill Clinton's speech the next day was quite resonant with the current administration and, and changes. And he had this really interesting quote um, that got very, that tweeted, got tweeted a lot. Don't change your life because of a momentarily bizarre course of human affairs. And, you know, that honestly was very much the, the theme of a lot of the discussions around taking action now, around being emboldened to take action on the change that we're advocating. And I think a lot of people were showing at Greenbuild how you know, they're either starting nonprofits or new technology companies or new initiatives or rethinking their business models because they know they're not going to be getting federal support. And then for Neil deGrasse Tyson, he did the closing plenary. And that was really an interesting person to bring to Greenville because he has almost no work specifically dealing with the built environment. Rather, he's an astrophysicist who, as you know, you know, uh, his mentor was Carl Sagan. He um, brought up a really fun presentation pointing out the significance of cities. He lives in New York City and, and, and how to think about the world beyond just itself. So considering the, the relationship beyond the building interacting with itself, with the skyline, with the planets, with the light, with the people, um, really looking at things much more holistically. And so that was really inspiring to kind of just get out of the machinations of, you know, building existing buildings and rating systems and all that, and just kind of take a step back and look at it on a much more planetary scale. And of course, he ended the show um, in a very appropriate way, reading Carl Sagan's famous essay, Pale Blue Dot. And it was great to end the show that way. So it turns out that green building is rocket science. <laughs> Elaine Shea, Verge Program Director and Senior Analyst, thanks for that report out. Thanks, Joel. So we wanted to check in and see what's going on at COP23 in Bonn. And I have on the line Michelle Patrons, Director of Sustainability Policy at Microsoft, and Elizabeth Wilmot, Environmental Sustainability Program Manager at Microsoft. Um, Michelle, talk a little bit about what's going on, the mood, the feeling in Bonn this week. So thank you. Uh, well, Microsoft is here in Bonn, and, and we're here with a wide range of businesses from both across the United States and from around the world, representing lots of different sectors, showing what business is doing to address climate change and to meet the goals in the Paris Agreement. And do people feel optimistic, pessimistic? Obviously, this is the first COP uh, of the Trump administration, and I know there's uh, been a lot of concerns and questions. Is business optimistic? What's going on? What's the feeling? So there's when you come to a COP, there's two different parts to it. There's the government negotiations, and then there's lots of different side events. The governments are obviously negotiating, and we're not in, in the room there. Uh, and we understand they're very focused on trying to put the rule book together of how countries are going to accomplish the, the Paris 
agreement and what transparency mechanisms there's going to be. In terms of the, the side events, you know, I think that there's been a, a real welcome to businesses being here, to American businesses being here, to demonstrating how through their operations, through actions in their supply chain, through actions and products and tools that they provide their customers, how they can help address climate change and are, are part of the conversation as well. So in terms of what's happening with the businesses and the meetings we've been having, people are very happy to have U.S. businesses here, and they're very happy to hear the stories that uh, the businesses are taking. Elizabeth, talk a little bit about uh, what Microsoft's goal is. Obviously, you want to showcase some of the things you're doing, and you have an announcement that you made uh, on Tuesday this week. But overall, what's the goal of of a, a company like Microsoft being in bond for this event? So from the perspective of our climate program at Microsoft, we see Paris, at the Paris Agreement as our North Star. We see it as an opportunity to engage with our customers, engage with our partners to help countries, civil society, academia, and the private sector work toward the globe's climate target. And we have personally worked backward from that to say, what do we need to do to help our customers achieve that? And what do we need to do in our own operations to achieve that? And we've concluded that we're actually able to, using our existing commitments to carbon neutrality and renewable energy procurement, we're actually able to cut our emissions by 75% by the year 2030. And so we are here standing in our business interest to, to show that and to show our customers that we are, we are ready and willing as ever to partner. So that's the announcement that you made this week that uh, you're pledging to cut the carbon emissions 75% by 2030. And obviously, this has been a journey that Microsoft has been on for a long time. And we've talked a lot about that on Green Biz and, and on this podcast. Why do you pick COP to make these announcements? In some ways, it feels natural because that's where everyone will be. On the other hand, it seems like everybody's making an announcement this week and it might get buried. Is this an effective thing, you, you think, to be making an announcements right now? This is Michelle. We thought that it was important to make this announcement at COP23 to provide confidence to the governments that are negotiating, to provide confidence to other companies and confidence to individuals that we can all take the steps together that are necessary to achieve the Paris goals. So are other companies uh, having conversations mm-hmm. with you saying, how are you doing it? What, how do we do what you do? I know there's a, always a lot of sort of the what, here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing, everybody's showing off their stuff. Is there more of any of the how in terms of helping uh, peer-to-peer you know, figure some of these big challenges out, and particularly in the big ways that, that Microsoft is taking them on? Absolutely. That's what's really helpful about being here with other businesses. We're able to share our experiences, learn from each other. We've had a number of other companies come up to us today when they found out about the target to hear more about it. And in terms of other programs that we have, if it's our renewable energy purchasing or carbon fee, we get lots of, of requests from other organizations, both private companies, universities, as well as, as governments to understand how we put in place the carbon fee. How are we going ahead with buying renewable energy at a cost-effective way? And so that's also another good reason to be here so we can share our experiences. Yeah. Michelle, you mentioned that uh, Microsoft and most companies, as are all companies, aren't in the room where the negotiations or hard work is taking place. Do you feel that your interests are being represented in the room? Uh, and if so, by whom? Our interests are being represented by, by Microsoft being here and by talking on panels and by having a booth that shows our technology and the tools that we provide our customers to make sure that 
all the different participants, if it's government, if it's other companies, if it's NGOs, understand why Microsoft cares about this issue and what we're doing about it. So it's not so much the negotiations taking place uh, in the official event that are of interest to you, I mean, of interest to you but uh, in terms of your direct involvement, you feel that those are going to go where they want to go and you're not necessarily trying to influence those? We have meetings with a lot of different governments. We have meetings with delegations to make sure that they understand what our point of view is, that we think climate action is important and we think that businesses are part of the solution and that they're taking actions that can um, help address the, the Paris goals. So what will make this uh, COP23 a success for you? From our point of view, it's it's companies coming together and showing that they're still committed to the Paris Agreements and they're taking action to reduce their emissions and to address the impact of climate change and to demonstrate the, the economic case and the business case for doing it. Elizabeth, uh, any additional thoughts from you? Absolutely. I, I would say what I've been most pleasantly surprised about with my this being my first COP experience is that it is a truly rich web uh, of stakeholders that we're seeing convene here. It's not only the negotiators, as Michelle said in the first part of the conference, but also uh, in this additional complementary part, we have civil society, private sector, academia. We have a wide range and a number of different exhibitions and meetings and stakeholder engagements and panels with this rich uh, diversity. And what's thrilling to me about that is that those folks are truly the implementers in hand-in-hand with government and are the folks who are necessary to achieve the Paris Accord. Well, it sounds like there's still good energy going on at COP, U.S. politics aside. So uh, thanks for that report, Michelle Patron, Director of Sustainability Policy at Microsoft, and Elizabeth Wilmot, Environmental Sustainability Program Manager at Microsoft. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. While you're there, look for the link to our new podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Send us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. And we'll be back, uh, not next week, we're going to take a week off for a little family time, Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And uh, we'll be back the week after that with another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>